Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab today. Well, today we're talking about something I know a lot of you are wondering about. You're trying to figure out. You're trying to understand how in the world can you take this hobby of game design, of, of you know creating games, bringing them to life, and turn that into a business? How do you take this passion and turn it into a profession? And we're talking to Chris Vanderlinden, who has done this with Loresmith Games. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, welcome. Really glad to have you here. You're a guy that has, has done this. You, you've turned your hobby into a business. You took your passion and made it into a profession with, with you know lots of interesting uh, starts and stops. We we're talking right before we, we hit record about you know this has been like a 15 year process to get to where you are now. And I'm really just I'm pumped to kind of understand your your background, your your story, your history, how you got to where you are now with Loresmith Games, and you guys create really cool supplements for RPG games. you got some awesome maps and card systems and different things that, that uh, Dungeon Masters and players can use for their, their D&D-style games. And so uh, I'm really excited just to understand how that business came to be and for listeners to understand how they can maybe uh, do it too, how they can kind of follow your pattern and, and turn their passion into their profession. But before we get into that, who are you? How did you get into gaming and creating RPG supplements and all that kind of thing? Cool. Yeah. Um, all right. I think I've probably gotten into this like many people do. Um, I'm 40 years old now and gosh, I think I've uh, taken an interest in stuff like Warhammer and uh, Magic the Gathering around like 13, 14 years, 15 years old at the local hobby shop. And I was just blown away by, you know, all of the miniatures and what the stuff looked like. And, um, uh, soon after, I found out about Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, you know, we quickly got a group together and, and started playing. So that was a lot of fun, and uh, obviously, I have a lot of nostalgic memories about that stuff. Um, at that time, never in a million years would I have guessed that at one day I would do that kind of stuff, you know, as a living, um, which I am doing now, and. Uh, yeah, uh, I've always had, you know, many sort of nerdy hobbies like painting Warhammer miniatures, uh, you know, playing Hero Quest, you name it. Uh, I love that uh, stuff. I still play Magic the Gathering uh, sometimes just to blow up some steam. And uh, yeah, at one point, uh, like you say, after I think a 12, 15 year period where I co-founded uh, several startup companies in the PC, PC gaming industry. Uh you know, after doing all of that, I kind of wanted to make a switch because I wasn't really feeling in my place anymore. Um, and uh, I really wanted to do something where I could be creative again. And um, what was essentially a hobby, you know, making some Dungeons and Dragons stuff, I felt like, well, why? Uh, I could just give it a shot, you know, see what happens. But uh, it still took a couple of years for me to, to sort of come to terms with what it takes to turn that from a hobby into a business. So that wasn't like an overnight thing. And uh, definitely all of the experience from 
my prior companies, all of the failures and lessons learned that all sort of led up to me, you know, feeling confident to, to make that choice and turn, turn that hobby into uh, a full-time gig. Very cool. And I'm really looking forward to unpacking all of those different variables and the different failures and the timelines and all that kind of thing. But before we get into that, were you already like making your own RPG supplements just for your home game? Like were you already putting together these things and then that kind of led into you thinking, oh, okay, I can, I can maybe do this, you know, and, and make some money. Is that kind of how it started? Or tell me kind of the, the early like origin story of Loresmith Games. <laughs> well, it's, it's definitely not as glamorous as you think. Um, when in my teenage years, and I think I think up to 20, 25 years, we definitely played Dungeons & Dragons regularly. I was usually the dungeon master, so I came up with the stories. But I'm not a writer. So, you know, you have writers and they write and they publish books. I'm not a writer. My background is in graphics design, photography, marketing, um, you know, making stuff look good and appealing so people go like, hey, that looks good, I wanna buy it. Um, but I'm not a writer. But I think in 2016, after I've already sort of quit playing Dungeons & Dragons uh, regularly, I thought it would be fun to maybe create an adventure module like the, the classic adventure modules that I sort of grew up with when we started playing. More for nostalgia's sake than I was thinking to make money off it. I just wanted to see if I could do it. Um, so I did write that one. It's called The Claws of Madness. And uh, it's a, a role-playing adventure for the 5th edition D&D. And I, I realized that I, I really wasn't a writer. I found it very hard to finish. Um, but I did see it all the way through. So I did the writing. I hired illustrators to, to to come up with the drawings i did the maps i did the layout work for, you know the typesetting and uh, you know make everything into a nice looking book cover artwork i kickstarted it and after a long long year it was finally finished so only 32 pages took me well over a year to complete i was ready to pull my hair out and i swore to never do it again because it sucked so much it was way way more work than I had anticipated. And then I just wanted to finish it, for, you know, for finishing sake. I put it out there and people liked it. I It got quite a bit of response. It still does. Um, and that was like the first sort of signal that I thought, well, oh, okay, people seem to like it. So maybe I can do another one. Um, and that's when I started looking at it a little bit more like a business because uh, running a business is very different from being a designer or a graphics artist or a writer and doing something with your talent. Being a business means that um, you look at what talents do I have and what talents am I lacking. And I realized that I wasn't a writer. So for the second adventure module, I was like, somebody else needs to write this and I could do, you know, all of the other businessy stuff around it. Um, and that's sort of how it got going. And I like to think of it that it sort of was a, a happy accident all, almost because halfway about making the Claws of Madness adventure that I just wanted to do, you know, to see if I could do it. There were multiple moments where I just wanted to give up because I didn't like writing. It was a way much work. 
way more work to actually finish it. And I was like, well, this is not worth it. Uh, I just finished it. And because people liked it so much uh, and encouraged me to make more, that's kind of like when Lorsmith became uh, a thing and I kept going. So if it, if it wasn't for finishing and putting that first thing out there, I, it probably would have ended just then and there. Gotcha. All right. So going in, you were just thinking, I want to make this one module. I, I just want to see if I can do this. I want to have some fun. You weren't at all thinking, I want to create a business from from the beginning, right? No, 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 not at all. I just, I had, you know, a cool idea for the story. Like, what if this would happen and I'll have this and this villain and this MacGuffin that everybody's chasing. Um, and I, I like coming up with, with the story hooks and the plots and just the overarching uh, conceptual thing. That's what I like. I'm a, I'm a creative guy, so it gets my, you know, my brain cells uh, whizzing. Um, but, you know, again, there's a huge difference between being a creative, being a designer and being a business. So, you know, if I was just a designer, my only task would be to design, you know, how the board game works or how that card uh, layout looks. Um, but now I experienced that not only did I need to be the writer, I needed to be the producer, the graphics artist. I needed to write artist briefings, wrangle artists. I needed to make a planning, put together a budget. I needed to figure out how Kickstarter worked. Um, I needed to figure out how to manufacture the books, how to ship them, um, how to do uh, a book layout, how to order ISBN codes. You know, suddenly I needed to be uh, 10 different professions in just one guy. And that's really the essence of startup businesses is you're either one guy or a couple of guys and everybody needs to wear different hats in order to be a business. You know, you need some financing. You need somebody to, you know, do the bookkeeping. You need somebody to maybe be a programmer or uh, whip up a planning and make sure, you know, that you have a guesstimate of, okay, this, this is the amount of stuff that needs done. This is how long that we think it'll it's going to take so that means we'll we're finished in december to do some play testing and you know that's really the difference from being just a, a designer or a creative within a team and and when when you're going to do it as a business suddenly you need to be all of those people in one and you may realize that you don't like being the the accountant or the project manager uh, or you, you may not have the talent for it. So you, you start looking for other people that do have the project management talent. And that's how, you know, most people get started and they form a team because then all of the talent comes together. And, uh, you know, that's how small businesses start. Uh, but that doing that one adventure module is, is like a great example that shows, you know, uh, also the importance of finishing. Uh, I think a lot of people start and as a designer, they focus on the quality of the design, the details, the polish, you know, um, but in the end, it doesn't matter if it's never finished and published. So you need to see it through however long it takes and actually get it out there, even if you think it sucks, because if you never get to the stage where you release it to the public, you've you've um, 
dismissed yourself of the chance to learn all those steps that come after the design. If you get hung up on the design for too long and never get to the manufacturing stage or the shipping stage or, you know, doing a Kickstarter, then you never get to learn and experience all of those steps and you only learn and get better at design. But if nobody, you know, gets to see it because you never actually finish it, you're you're never going to learn the full cycle that is needed for it to be a business. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So looking at your uh, your creator page on Kickstarter, so you did a couple campaigns early on that were pretty humble, had about 100 backers each, yeah. uh, and then sold you know pretty well in drive-through RPG. But then your third one had eight, right at 800 backers. And so what, what were you doing? That was about a two and a half year or so process that you went from, you know, humble beginnings. And now you've got a campaign with 800 backers, which is pretty substantial, uh, especially in the, the role-playing space, which, you know, there's very few of those campaigns do amazingly well. A lot of those are very humble in, in their, their numbers. And so how did you go from, you know, hundred backers all the way up to eight, uh, excuse me, 800? Like, what does that look like for your business? Cause you, you still weren't full time yet. Right, you're still trying to figure this out on the side, and so kind of walk me through. Yeah, the correct. Right that, that's true. Yeah, I think until I think I've done. Uh, well, let me look because I've I've done quite a few. So the first stuff that I did was adventure modules, so like the Claws of Madness and you know some stuff, and uh, that was basically doing what everybody else was doing. Everybody was doing adventure modules or player guides or monster books because that's popular for D&D. So, and I kind of, you know, just went like, okay, I'll do adventure modules too. Um, but then, um, you know, it was a side thing. So I was still relying on my, you know, day job to bring in a monthly salary. So basically uh, whatever sales came in was like a nice bonus. I, you know, there was no risk involved for me. Uh, but when I started thinking about, okay, what if I quit my day job and this needs to pay the bills every month, then the adventure modules weren't bringing, up, bringing in enough revenue. Uh, to my taste, they were pretty expensive to make. You know, for, for a 32-page book or a 50-page book, you still needed to cover artwork. You still needed maps, artwork, writing, playtesting. So for essentially a small product, there was a substantial investment. And then when I looked at the sales on drive through RPG, it was decent. It was nice, but nowhere near enough to make a living. So that's when I started to think like, okay, what are other products that I would you know, like doing that could maybe have a wider appeal. And that's very essential to your business is that uh, you can have wonderful ideas about stuff that you like and you would love to make, but eventually you need to find your market. If your audience that you have doesn't really chime with the kind of board game that you're putting out or adventure modules, then you need to start figuring out like, okay, what... So what is it that they're interested in? And is that still something that I would like to make as a business, as a creative person? Um, and that's when I did the Remarkable Inns and their drinks. And that's the one that suddenly outperformed all of the other stuff that I had done before. Uh, and it apparently it struck a nerve with much more people. It had a much wider appeal. And... Ever since that product, my whole focus 
for Lorsmith changed. And now for every pod- product, I think, you know, who's my audience? What What is their problem that I'm trying to solve? Or what is their, you know, what are they into? Uh, what would appeal to them? And with every project, you look at how it performed. I do customer surveys to to get insights and, you know, learn from what my customers like or dislike. And, and um, you continue to develop your product vision more. So with every product concept that you come up with, you, you know, you have a better hunch of whether it will be uh, successful for your audience and your market. And uh, so that, that explains why I was able to make a sudden jump for, from small-time Kickstarters to slightly bigger ones. And then Remarkable Shops last year pulled in 100000 And uh, that's when I really knew that, okay, I've now found something that really, really strikes a nerve with my audience, and I should develop this more. Very cool. And it's something I've talked to a few people on the show in the past about is understanding that Kickstarter is a marketplace. And like any other marketplace, if you want to do well, you have to have a good product, not just a good game, not just a good idea, but it has to be a good product that entices people, that hooks people in and makes them want to pull out their their credit card and give you some money. And, and I feel like a lot of people still don't understand that. They, they're going to Kickstarter with a dream, you know, a hope and a prayer and what they think is a good idea. Uh, I, I was online a couple of days ago in one of the Facebook groups about Kickstarter and a guy, uh, he posted this rant. Uh, complaining about the coronavirus. And he said, if it wasn't for the coronavirus, then my game would have funded. And, you know, he only had like 50 backers or 75 backers, something like that at the time. And he was just really upset about the state of the world. And I'm over here looking at Gloomhaven, which had at that point made about $6 million, you know, and I was like, man, it's not, I don't, it's not the coronavirus. And I looked at his project and the art was bad. The game concept didn't seem super interesting. Graphic design was bad. Like there were so many red flags. It's like, man, it's not about the, like, don't blame the state of the world. Blame the state of your product because this is a bad product, especially for Kickstarter. It was a party game. It's like, this is just not a good idea as a product on Kickstarter. And I feel like a lot of people just don't fully understand that. And so what would be your best advice to somebody trying to figure out a good product, not just a good game, not just a good idea to put on Kickstarter you know, maybe start a business and be successful. Like you you talked about surveys and everything. I think that's really good. Any other advice as far as like figuring out what creates a good product for the marketplace? Well, I mean, to me, that's like the, the, the most important thing that people need to realize. And I've touched on it before it, the most important thing is, and, uh, in, in the software development, uh, uh, terms they call it time to market or get to market you know the faster you can get your idea in front of a real audience the the sooner you will know if they want it and a great a great example is i think the founder of spotify i believe he he has done quite a few interviews where he's saying well we've could have you know developed for longer and perfected the platform you know and know add more features but they just wanted to get it out there the first and as fast as possible so that they would get actual feedback from actual people that would pay for you know set product and this is the same for a kickstarter you can have the most amazing design board game card game idea uh, and maybe it it is a great idea but you will never know until you you know, get it in front of an audience through Kickstarter or in a different way. And that's the real test. And that's why what I also mean with, 
you know, as a business, design is is the smallest aspect of your entire thing. You know, that's where it starts, but then it needs to get developed. It needs to get play tested, manufactured, uh, packaged, shipped and warehoused across the world. So design, you know, maybe is like 10 or 20 percent of the whole uh, year or two years that you're going to work with it. Um, so do yourself a favor. And if you're just starting out, start small and promise yourself you know, to see it through all the way to publishing it on Kickstarter, whether it gets funded or not, because that will give you so, so much uh, insight in, you know, like what you say, maybe um, it was a great design that that person had that the Kickstarter failed, but maybe the, the cover artwork or the packaging artwork wasn't so appealing. Maybe the product name uh, needed to, to have more oomph or resonate more with the audience. Maybe the the 130 words that that is the first text that people see. Maybe that really didn't resonate. You know, there are so many factors that um, go play into something being a success or not. And design again is just one aspect of it. Uh, so do yourself a favor and really promise yourself to to see it through all of the stages and get it in front of an audience as fast as possible because that's the fastest and the best way to learn. And it's very humbling. I mean, I had failures, Kickstarters that didn't go through or products that I, I thought that like, this is going to be cool. I love it. I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. And then people were like, well, more, okay. It funded, but that was it, you know? So it's very humbling and very, insightful to go through all of these stages and learn and then you can take all your lessons learned into the next project and then you will see massive improvements and then you'll get there and usually it's the people that you know work for two years lock themselves in a room away from the world uh, wait a very long time to publish and then they realize oh, okay nobody's really wanting my product anyway or they didn't put as much effort in all of the other aspects and only it put attention into the design. So it, it wasn't set up for success. So I think that's really my biggest lesson, uh, biggest takeaway, uh, really. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, thinking back about th this guy on, on Facebook that was ranting and complaining, uh, I feel like if he had gone, if, just basically looked at it from the angle you're talking about, kind of realizing, okay, this didn't work out. But this is not necessarily a bad thing. This is not some epic, you know, personal failure. This is just the market telling me what they want. And so how am I going to adapt? How am I going to evolve and change? What am I going to do for this product? Maybe this isn't a good product at all. Maybe I just need to, you know, be thankful that I learned this without spending a ton of money and then putting something out into the world that nobody actually wanted to buy and you know, do something different. And it reminds me of when, when I was in college, I was playing football and uh, we had a really good year. My, my senior year, we, well, it was pretty good. We won eight games. Right. We won a lot of really close games, a lot of good games. Uh, starting quarterback set a bunch of records that year for touchdown passes and different things like that. And like we had a lot of really good seniors that year that uh, then graduated. And so, you know, people in the media went to the head coach going into that next season and they say, hey, coach, you know, you, you graduate a lot of guys, had a pretty good year last year. But is this year going to be a rebuilding year? And the coach said, rebuild. We're not rebuilding. We're reloading. Right? We're, not we're not talking about rebuilding. We're, we're going to reload. And uh, they ended up winning the national championship that next year, going undefeated, uh, had a Heisman Trophy winner as, as starting quarterback. And so I, I think it's a good way to look at failure. It's like, okay, this didn't go well. 
what, what can I do to reload? How can I adapt? How can I adjust? How can I change to come back stronger and then, and then make this uh, an even better product down the road? Is, is that kind of your assessment as well? Uh, well, first off, I like that analogy. And um, anyone you'll ask what it's like running a business, failure is a big part of it. Uh, there isn't an entrepreneur, uh, small or big companies that doesn't that hasn't had failures. And they'll agree. They'll usually tell you like uh, the biggest turning points were usually coming out of a crisis or failure of some sorts because that's usually where you'll learn and and you see this with kids uh for example they feel most comfortable with stuff they already know because it's it's a safe environment and they kind of get nervous or insecure when they need to do something that they didn't know yet um but when they succeeded they're like they're over a moon you see their faces light up because they realize they're doing something that they couldn't do uh, you know the day before and with with business it's all about balancing you know how much risk are you willing to take but there's always a chance for failure either through inexperience because it's your first project and you didn't know how to budget it so it went over budget or you lost money on it or it took way longer because your planning skills suck um, there could be a, a worldwide pandemic or there could be cargo lost in the freight company. Uh, there could be a fire in your warehouse there, you know, there's stuff that you can control. There's stuff out of your control, but failure is, I would say, <laughs> um, you know, or setbacks that's, you know, part of daily routine. And if you're a good, uh, business guy, you, uh, you sort of, uh, feed on it and it gives your energy you know it to me every time stuff happens that sucks you know I can be bummed out but then within an hour I come back you know with with more fighting spirit and a sharper wit you know and I'm ready to take it on I'm just like okay what happened you know is there something I can do about it is there a lesson to be learned for next time could I put a workflow workflow in place so it doesn't happen again um, you know, to me, that's always the fuel that takes me further instead of staying, you know, in that safe zone and acting only on what you already know that that's no recipe for growth. Yeah, for sure. Now, you mentioned that during this time uh, before you, you went full time, you're working for other companies. Some of these were major companies, uh, just kind of looking at your, your resume. And so what were some of the things that you were learning at these other jobs, these other companies that then you were able to translate over into your own business? Sure. Oh, wow. That's an interesting question. Well, um, that's sort of talking about a 15 year period. Uh, well, I co-founded multiple startups that were more into the PC gaming, uh, MMO um, sort of space. And uh, there were also more, much more technical. We had large programming teams. And with one company, we developed streaming technology before uh, cloud gaming was even a thing. And we licensed our software to big companies like Cartoon Network, um, you know, lots of Asian MMO companies. Um, so through in that capacity, I got to work with a lot of big companies. And in my later, the company that we founded afterwards, I got to work with, you know, Warner Bros, uh, Ubisoft, uh, you know, all of the big names in the games industry. 
Um, I think what I've learned is that you need to be a good listener and always have respect for others. And it's very easy when you work with other people, other companies, and again, for example, stuff goes wrong. It's very easy to to take a stance like, oh, okay, they messed up or, you know, they weren't paying attention. Um, I learned to listen and to ask uh, the other side how they are doing things or what they expect or how they would like to do it. And usually I learned more from it and the relationship strengthened and uh, it was good for my ego because it's very easy to point fingers, but it's much more difficult to to also look inward and maybe realize, oh, okay, we maybe we could have communicated a little bit better. Um, and uh, we were a fairly small company, companies like Ubisoft, LucasArts, Cartoon Network, they're huge. So you go through a lot of management layers and communication layers. So, you know, things go slower or it's easier for communications to get, you know, a little uh, fuzzy. And uh, so in the early days, I always had the feeling like, you know, uh, pointing fingers like, oh, they're, you know, that sucks or <laughs> they're, they, they're hard to work with. And uh, later on, I realized, a lot, well, there's actually a lot I can learn from them. And it was a humbling experience when I started looking at, oh, okay, we probably, it's us that need to change in how we approach those big companies or how we approach hiring people. And, uh, you know, that's when things actually started getting better, when we started looking at ourselves, what we could improve, and then everything else improved. So... Um, I think that that's definitely something I learned with working with others and, you know, being in large teams, et cetera. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And I love the idea of basically taking all of your life's work and then learning from it. I feel like that's something that, that no matter what job you're in and no matter if you're starting a business or not, but anytime you can kind of take a, uh, take stock and take feedback from your entire you know, life's work, body of work and different companies you've worked with and kind of figure out, okay, I like this. I don't like that. And then how can I adjust? And as like you're saying, as opposed to just blaming everybody else and thinking, okay, what can I do differently for our company, for my job to be different? And so, all right. So you did this for a while where you're kind of doing the gaming thing on the side and creating these RPG products and stuff like that. And then eventually you said, you know, I'm going to do this full time. I'm going to make the leap. I'm going to make the jump to turning this into my full time income, my, my job. I'm going to take that risk. Tell me about that decision, how you came to make that. Were there some like parameters? Like were you looking at certain thresholds with maybe Kickstarter projects or something like that? Like how did you make that ultimate decision? Right. Yeah, I think um, there wasn't like this one moment when it all happened. It wasn't really that black and white. Um, I think it was sort of... it kind of there were smaller things leading up to that decision. I had always thought about it, uh, especially when uh, after like 10 years, I was starting to kind of wear out with these other companies. I've done it a couple times. I was, I was in a top management layer. So typically my days would look like meetings and then more meetings and then some meetings, you know, and stakeholders and a lot of contracts and paperwork. Um, so I wasn't really feeling that creative anymore. So I started to feel like maybe my time was up. And um, I think that's something that people can relate to. Like you're, you're already in a position maybe for more years and they start to feel like, well, I like to do something else. 
So that's when I started to look more seriously into if I could turn the hobby into a business. And at that time, uh, even though I had increasing success with the Kickstarters, if I just looked at the products that I already had, you know, sales were so up and down. There were months where I made a hundred bucks and then 300, 500, and then 50. So there was nowhere near to be able to, you know, pay for the house and, you know, uh, food and a car so i was kind of banking on having one or two good kickstarters every year to sort of fill in all of the gaps in the sales so that was pretty you know (laughs) that was a, a pretty risky move then i had one kickstarter that really did super well again and that gave me a little bit more confidence like okay maybe i should just you know Uh, take a gamble and go for it Um, all the way up to the moment where I decided to step down as a co-founder and shareholder with my other company um, there was never a moment where financially it was like all paved way it was it continued to be insecure and I knew you know it it was going to be that way because starting a new business is insecure even if you have good plans, even if you have a little backup, you still don't know what will happen or how long it will take for, you know, products to come out, sales to pick up, etc. So I knew that going in and I, uh, me and my wife talked about it and we accepted that it would be risky and that it would probably suck for a long time. Um, luckily, it didn't suck so hard and it, it turned out actually pretty well. But I think people need to realize that it's kind of a sort of a chicken egg where if you're still in your day job, you can only work on it in the evenings and the weekends. So the lack of time limits the amount of success you can hope to get from your new venture, but uh, you still need the income. And you know kind of when you could do your new thing full time that it it has a higher chance of success, but the money isn't there yet. Um, So there's always this chicken egg uh, situation. And I think you just need to accept that, you know, going into it, there's a lot of risk. It will be insecure. It probably, you know, will take some time to pick up. Uh, There's a couple of uh, ways that you can go about it. Maybe you have some savings that could pull you through a couple of months or, half a year when things are still in development. Maybe you have other safety nets that you can rely on. Um, you know, uh, everybody I think needs to see for himself, you know, how much risk they can take, but it's always going to be a little risky. And at one point you just need, need to go for it. Uh, I would say have a plan, you know, uh, if you totally have no experience no plan, nothing in place whatsoever, then think about it maybe, uh, you know, once more. But, you know, if you have a plan, if you think you know what you're doing, if you've thought about, you know, how much money do I need to, you know, go half a year without income or, you know, how much would I need to do this and that, uh, you know, have a plan A for when it's successful, have a plan B for when it's not so successful. And, you know, if you have all that, if you've thought about it, then, you know, just go for it. There's only one way to find out if it works, and that's to go for it.
Yeah, for sure. I think another thing that I found that helps me personally or has helped me personally in figuring out, okay, how can I turn my hobby, my passion into a business, into my full-time job is setting some hard debt, uh, setting some hard deadlines, setting some hard dates and really thinking through, okay, what does it look like to do this by June 1st or do this by December 31st or, or whatever it is and really give yourself actual timelines in your planning. Cause a lot of times, you know, people are like, Oh, I want to, I want to be able to do this one day. It's like, well, one day, I don't, I don't find one day on, on the calendar. Like there's no one day, you know? And so uh, really thinking through what are some specifics on figuring these things out, uh, maybe hits, you know, looking at specific thresholds and really thinking through and, and so not just uh, planning indefinitely, but really thinking through, OK, what makes the most sense? Uh, and another thing is to think through what makes the most money, like what brings in the best opportunities? Because, you know, you're going to run into so many different opportunities that might be really cool, might be really fun. But are they actually going to be sustainable in your business? Are they actually going to be what kind of moves the needle of being able to do this full time? That's something I've run into. I'm, I'm sure you've run into as well. You, you could probably, you know, spend a lot of time creating some maps for D&D games that you think are amazing that might only get 100 backers on Kickstarter. It's like, OK, well, that doesn't necessarily make the most sense for me to do that right now. And if you're trying to do this full time, you really have to think about that. When you're doing this on the side, you can kind of do whatever side projects you want because it's not a big deal. But when you're when you're doing this as your full-time gig, you really have to think through what makes the most sense product-wise, what's going to really bring in the most backers, uh, the most resources, that kind of thing. You have to, you have to get really efficient with your, your thinking and your time and your planning and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, and this is kind of my last thought before I'll turn it back over to you, uh, I read a quote a while back from a guy named Peter Drucker, and he says, there's nothing so useless as doing efficiently something that should not have been done at all. And I've really been holding on to that thinking like, okay, I could be really efficient in doing these things, but maybe they're not worth doing at all. Maybe they're not actually going to help me long-term at all. And so what has been your experience in kind of finding, figuring out how to say yes to certain things, how to say no to a lot of other things so you could continue doing this full-time, continue bringing in you know, the numbers that you need to bring in to be able to do this sustainably? Sure, yeah. Uh, oh, wow. I mean... Um... I may have a, a sort of an unfair advantage because I did several companies over, you know, close to 15 years. So that's where, you know, our first company, we spend, you know, all the time on all the wrong things at the wrong time. So, and that's what you should go through. So on your first projects, on your first company, you're gonna, you know, spend time on what your business cards look like um, in week one, where it doesn't matter what your business card looks like in week one. Instead, you should have made a planning for your product development or, you know, but you're going to spend uh, time on stuff that's not needed at that moment or not needed at all. And you'll know by the second project, like, oh, you know, when we kind of worried about all this and that, you know, last year, you know, that's only relevant when we get to this stage or when we get to this stage. And that's why I keep coming back to those stages from going from idea to design to prototype, playtesting, uh, development, uh, etc. And all the way up to publishing. That's giving yourself the opportunity to learn what's relevant in all of those stages. And, oh, it took us so long. So next project, when we do a similar product, we can we can now make a development timeline because we knew making a prototype or getting feedback from a customer and processing the feedback took a month or two months or, Oh, printing uh, the card decks and shipping them to our warehouse took 
twice as long as we anticipated. So, you know, going through these stages, you'll learn so much and you, you will also know when something is needed, you know, and when to worry about so, certain stuff and when it's not the right time to, to be spending time on that just yet. Um, so I think that's, you know, something you'll learn from every project and just going through it. There is no manual book that you can just buy and flip through and like there's all of the lessons there. It's different for everyone. So just go out and do it and just know that you will make all of those stupid mistakes and that it's good because then the next time you won't make them again. Uh, you'll need to also change and adapt. Uh, and that's about finding your market. You were talking about, you know, uh, what what pays the bills, you know, what makes the most money. Uh, a business, you know, needs to be able to su sustain itself uh, and ideally make products that you also creatively or, you know, philosophically feel uh, cool about. Um, but yeah, the adventure modules that I started out with, I stopped doing altogether because I realized that they weren't the moneymakers. Um, I discovered that card decks are cheaper to manufacture than books and easier to design and write because they have less words. They're, you know, just easier to product. They take uh, less time to develop. So you'll learn and hopefully you'll change and adapt and be open-minded about, you know, uh, refining and letting those things dictate what you will make next uh, in order to still do what you love and to also, you know, uh, see what makes money. And uh, to quickly uh, maybe jump back to the previous point, like when when is a good moment to, to jump, take the jump uh, and, you know, quit your day job and, uh, you know, do your turn your hobby into a full time job. Uh, I think it's very important, you know, to, to tell your wife, tell your husband, um, uh, boyfriend, whatever, that uh, you're going to do this and make sure they're on board because uh, it can be very high pressure. I, I recall from when I was doing Remarkable Inns, for example, I still had my day job. It was uh, the Kickstarter that did exceptionally well. I was sort of caught off guard by the amount of work that was suddenly I was swamped and I needed to fulfill to uh, 800 backers and you know it was getting a little bit too much for me i had to work all evenings all weekends just to get it out um and my wife was not happy um and what i should have done is just you know talk to her a little bit more about it and make her part of it like this is my dream this is what i want to do it's gonna you know take up a lot of time basically i come home for work and then i have more work um and now it's a different situation where, you know, we, we both know that this is now my new, uh, this is what my days look like. But when you're still, you know, either doing it on the side or you're just making the jump, make sure that, you know, your loved ones, your family and friends are into it because for a long time, you're going to be engrossed by it. It's going to take up all of your time. You're not going to parties as much. You're going to stop playing World of Warcraft. You know, it's going to demand a lot from you, but also the people around you. So if they're going <laughs> to be unhappy about it, it's not going to help your your success. You know, if your wife's, wife starts complaining, it's never a good sign, uh, in my opinion.
Yeah, this kind of thing is definitely a team game. And so you want to have the, the people around you on your side, on your team. For sure, again, that goes into the planning uh, going in. Now, what have been some of the biggest pitfalls or biggest challenges that you've run into as far as going into this as your full-time, full-time job? Well, I mean, there's, there's been many, many uh, big and small, uh, you know, making enough money to, to get by is always a concern, especially in the beginning. Um, cash flow, for example. So I know Kickstarter takes away a little bit of that problem where you'll raise funds that cover cost of development, manufacturing, etc. But I find now that I'm growing a little bit, and for example, a product that I've already kickstarted and had a first print run, it got sold out. So I want to manufacture more. There's no Kickstarter. So I need to be able to finance it from my own bank account or, you know, you know, not have any more product to sell. But as a business, you know, probably want to keep products in stock that are selling. Uh, so I need to, needed to manufacture more. And that's when I quickly realized, you know, you could have 100,000 in your bank account and feel on top of the world. And then three months later, um, you know, two or three products went out of stock that needed to be manufactured and, and freighted to the USA. And then my bank account had 20,000 and I was struggling to pay the bills. So uh, Kickstarter is one thing, but, you know, as you, uh, you know, you can go from Kickstarter to Kickstarter and, and that's it. But you'll reach a point, hopefully, where you'll have existing products to sell and then cash flow becomes this perpetual challenge, like balancing between how much you need in the bank, uh, you know, to foresee for unexpected things or, you know, invest in products that you don't have a Kickstarter for. Um, Product planning, product development, I think is one of the hardest things because you have a lot of dependencies with outside parties typically. Uh, in my case, for example, I hire one or multiple writers to to write a book over the period of half a year to a year. There's multiple illustrators, there's artists, there's one or two editors. Um, so all of these people need to work together and uh, typically you need to chase them in order to to get them to submit their work, et cetera, and to stay on the timeline that you've planned for. And it's very easy for timelines to slip, you know, even if you plan very carefully. And even when I've done books now a couple of times, it's still fairly easy to slip because a writer got sick or, you know, an artist dropped out because of family issues or whatever. So dependencies are very hard to accommodate for. Um, and that's, you know, one of the pitfalls maybe of people starting out is that they plan very optimistically. They look at what they uh, can realistically do in a given time frame, but then they kind of forget like, oh, okay, but you know, there's other people that I rely on to do stuff in order for my product to get finished. Um, and now they are late. So now I am late and I, I have to tell my backers. So uh, I think keeping, um, you know, making a planning, making a budget, staying on planning, staying within budget. That's usually a, quite a big challenge and it could be a pitfall. Yep. Oh yeah, I completely agree. That's something I've run into in my own projects. Uh, you run into these bottlenecks where everything is good to go, but you're waiting on that one person to finish that one thing before everybody else can 
continue doing their job or, you know, before you can send it off to the factory or whatever. And so that's something you, you, again, you learn by doing and you learn by failing a few times and figuring out, okay, I probably should have put an extra three weeks, six weeks into the, the planning for this for whatever reason. Or, you know, maybe the whole entire world goes into a pandemic lockdown and that changes everything as well. So <laughs> things are, are always bound to happen. Now, let me ask you about this. This is something you know, a lot of people have run into where they had this idea of a dream job, which, you know, I, I don't like to use that phrase. Uh, I feel like a dream job only exists while you're asleep. It only exists in your dreams. There's no such thing mm. as a dream job or a perfect job. But a lot of people have an idea about what it looks like to turn their hobby into a passion, you know, to, to make a full-time living off of the thing that they love to do uh, as, you know, as their hobby, as their side hustle or something like that. But it, it, it's not all, you know, rainbows and butterflies. And, and so this is the reason I would never work at Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A too much to ever work there. I don't want it to be ruined for me. You know, I don't want it to be like, oh, I don't want to look at another chicken sandwich. And so, like, tell me some of the things you ran into that maybe you weren't ex- expecting or anticipating. They're like, wow, this is not what I thought it would be. Or this is not nearly as much fun as I thought I would have or something along those lines. Right. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think, um, well, it has certain aspects. Uh I find that I discovered over the years that I like being an entrepreneur. I've I've worked, I think it's now 20 years ago since I had a boss. And after that, I was always my own boss. And I like it. I like taking risks. I like the freedom that it gives or the sense of freedom. I can, you know, decide what my workday looks like, etc. But there's also people that you know, discover they like the nine to five. They like not having all of the responsibilities weighing on their shoulders. They have a boss which tells them, you know, hey, you know, sticker those boxes and then you're done. You know, some people like that and it's fine because you don't have to think about as much. It's less responsibility. You're still feeling good because you've achieved something. And I think a lot of people that dream about that dream do- job and when they actually start doing it, they may realize that they are not the entrepreneurial type. They struggle with having all of the responsibilities being on them, uh, which can definitely uh, amount to a lot of pressure. Um, again, your partner uh, may not you know, be able to cope with the, the risks, the uncertainty that it brings uh, with you deciding to, you know, to chase your dream, you know, but what if we lose our house, you know, that kind of stuff. It's so I think th- that's a big aspect of it. So once you've made the jump, uh, I think what I realized is that many people then start to work from home. And initially that for me meant that I was in the living room. So with the kids around me and the TV and, you know, while my wife was trying to home study my kids, I was trying to focus, you know, getting some work done and private life and work life completely, you know, the lines blurred and people, you know, she, my wife wouldn't know when I was sitting behind a computer just to relax or, you know, when I was working, I would constantly get interrupted and then everybody got annoyed and, you know, um, so I realized, okay, I need my own place uh, for this to, to be able to work. Uh, now I have my own place away from the main house, but the kids still walk in and out occasionally. For them, it's pretty difficult to, you know, 
I see daddy, so I just go to daddy, and they don't care if you're in a call or if you're working or not. But especially when I was still, you know, in the living room and private life and work life blended into each other, it was very, very unhealthy and super stressful in everyone. So if you have the ability to skip that and immediately, you know, get your own room, your own place, uh, and, you know, that your partner knows like on these times, on these days, uh, he's working. And then it, um, after 4 p.m., when he shows up, then I can ask him stuff and talk to him and it's private life. That creates the sort of the clear boundaries that everybody needs. And uh, I still learn every day how to perfect that, you know, to balance the when I have time and attention for my kids or when they know that, you know, uh, now he's at work and we shouldn't be bothering him. I think that's definitely something that you will experience and learn um, when working for yourself and chasing your dream job. Yeah, I completely, completely agree with that sentiment. That's something I'm doing with uh, recently, you know, spending several weeks now here at home and trying to, you know, get stuff done from my couch. And uh, at the same time, we're looking into moving back to the United States, hopefully later this year. And so we've just been, you know, looking at houses and trying to get an idea of price ranges and stuff like that. And uh, every single house that I give any consideration to, it has to have a basement. It has to have a finished basement where it has a bedroom down there, has a place where I can, like, basically that's going to be my work. And, and and when dad goes to work, he's at work. And, and so, you know, if the house is on fire, let me know. But if you're just trying to figure out, can you eat a cookie or not? Like you need to go ask mom about that because dad's at work. You know, in the same way you wouldn't come to the office, you wouldn't come to my classroom while I'm teaching and, and ask me that question. Okay. in trying to set up barriers and uh, like you're saying, certain days, certain times where where, you know, I'm at work and making that really, really important. It's interesting because um, when you're working for yourself, all of these things kind of seem to disappear. Whereas people work at a company with a boss, they they know exactly how many holiday days they still have left, when they're uh, free, when they work, how, what time they get off work when the next holiday is, they, then they all know these things. And when they start working for themselves, they forget, you know, to have clear work times. They forget to go on a holiday. Um, and suddenly they realize they've worked for two years every day, all weekends, and never give themselves a break. So it's kind of oddly surprising that when people start to run their own company, they kind of throw all of that out of the window. And you really benefit and your family benefits from, you know, having uh, some sort of weekly routine, what times you work, when you're off, when you're looking after kids and when not to, etc. And to touch a little on your, you know, that dream job when people sort of fantasize like, wow, this would be amazing to turn my hobby, what I love doing into a business. Um and and that can be a harsh reality indeed because like what i said in the beginning is when you're starting a business small business uh you need to wear many hats at once you need to be the the accountant the planner the producer the play tester you need to be everything and you will quickly realize that you're uh, a not good at everything you just don't have the experience and b you may not like to be the accountant the project the project manager etc um, and I, I, I play in a band, uh, I like making music, play some drums, etc. 
And the amount of people I talk to that, you know, dream of making it big with their music, they always seem to think like, I'm the rock star. I can just make music 100% of the time and let everybody else take care of the management and the promotions and the bookings and, you know, getting us live shows. But today in this world, as a musician, you need to be everything. You need to be the record label. You need to be your own promoter. You need to be your own booker. Uh, and that's the same in in virtually any industry now. If you're a small business creating role-playing products or board game stuff, you need to be <laughs> uh, you need to be all of those roles and either find people that are good at it and like doing it or suck it up. And, you know, do some of the bookkeeping, do some of the stuff that well, you don't really like, but it has to be done anyway. And if you cannot live with that, then running, turning it into a business is not for you. And typically I say there's like this 80-20 rule where 20% of the time when you've turned your hobby into a business, only 20% of time still goes into doing what you love and 80% is all of the rest, you know, is bookkeeping, is maintaining the social media, is doing customer support, is getting price quotes from manufacturers, is uh, dealing with a backer who is still not satisfied. So, you know, um, and and realize that and then figure out for yourself if it's, if it's still something that you're willing to pursue when, you know, you love doing board game design but then that would only you know be 20% or less of your work week and 80% of the stuff is just all all of the rest you know and that that can be pretty shocking uh, if you go into that unsuspecting yeah definitely and that's something i've had to figure out as well and so what i've what i've done is basically just schedule certain days certain times as i and you know i'm i'm doing game design that's what i'm doing i'm not worried about shipping i'm not worried about logistics or localization partners or anything else I'm only working on the next game that I'm trying to bring to market and just really scheduling that time and then dying on that hill. But I also want to bring up something you, you spoke on briefly a moment ago, and that's vacation time. And basically just, you know, a lot of times when people, like you're saying, start their own business, they kind of throw their health out the window. They throw vacation days and days off out the window. And that's not good for you. That's not good for your family. That's how you have a heart attack and, and die, you know, long <laughs> before you're supposed to. And so, you know, if you're sitting here listening to this, I want to encourage you to also have a plan for that. You know, right now I'm supposed to be in Roatan. It's really annoying. My, my family's a little salty about it. We can't leave the house and we're supposed to be on a, an island paradise right now, just hanging out at the beach. It's not working out because this whole coronavirus thing. But uh, you got to plan that stuff. You got to figure it out. And I told him, you know, we'll go in August. <laughs> we'll, we'll move the flights and we'll, we'll hopefully go in August when all this stuff uh, blows over. But you got to make time for that. And that's another thing you have to die on that hill. And again, scheduling and planning, all that goes into it. Because life life will easily take advantage of you if you're not taking it by the horns and really you know, scheduling and planning and, and making life work for you. Very true. I've, I've Since this year, I've aligned my my free time and my holidays with the kids' school holidays so that my wife knows and the kids know that like, okay, these blocks of weeks within a year, uh, I'm off. And I plan, I plan my product development and my Kickstarter schedules around that. So I know that it's probably not smart to launch a Kickstarter when the next week we're off on a holiday, you know, in some theme park where I can't access my internet or, you know, do crisis management if it's needed. So, and it's much nicer for my wife and kids to know that, 
you know, daddy is not, you know, on his mobile phone all the time. We can just talk to him like a normal human being. He's not going to stare at us with blank eyes, you know, and that, that you didn't used to be that way. You know, when I was just starting out, it was sort of vague, you know, uh, I could be grumpy or annoyed or short tempered because I was, you know, frantically doing some Kickstarter stuff, but they, they didn't have a clue, you know, it was time for dinner and, you know, why are you, you're, why are so, you're so wind up, you know, or, Hey, we're, we're, we're having a good, a cool night out or we're at, the, uh, you know, the play for a playground with the kids and why you're on the phone again. Yeah. Well, some, something urgent came up support and this and that. So that's why I now aligned it. You know, it, we have a clear work week. Um, I already know when we're going on a holiday uh, when I can plan certain stuff, when I'm away, uh, what good moments are, you know, to have spikes in support and when I can absolutely do no support or fulfillment or whatever. So yeah, do, do think about those aspects as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, this has been great, man. Do you have any closing thoughts, anything you want to leave listeners with, you know, people sitting there thinking, all right, how do I, how do I do this? How do I turn this hobby into a profession? How do I make this, this side gig into my actual full-time job? Any closing thoughts? Well, my closing thoughts would be, uh, don't worry. You know, it, it can be scary. It is scary. You don't have to know it all. Just embrace the fact that, uh, by starting, by doing it, you'll make mistakes and learn. Uh, some stuff will work, some stuff won't work, and that's good. And just embrace the fact that that's how it's going to be. Um, some people find it really difficult just to get started. They want to feel prepared or over-prepared, like a dungeon master uh, preparing his next session. And I think the key is that you cannot be expected to know everything because if you've never ridden a bicycle before, you know how would you know to bike? You got to do it and then you'll learn how to ride a bicycle or skateboard or, you know, uh, program. Um, so I think it's it's kind of weird that, you know, people's minds go like, oh, I need to be super prepared and know all this for it for for me to go anywhere. But I think, you know, the the takeaway is and the uh, the encouraging fact is just just get started. Um, stuff will go wrong, but hey, who cares? Uh, that's life. And um, then maybe set small milestones. So think of your big dream and break it down into half a year and a couple months and a couple weeks and a couple days. And then just look, okay, if I would like to achieve this micro milestone next month, then what could I do today to be there next month? And then think about, okay, if I'm here next month, then what steps would I, what things would I need to do to reach this in half a year or, or the next month? And then look back in a year and you're actually there and you've learned a lot and you're there. Uh, and that's, I think, my best advice to start doing it. Set small milestones, break up your big ambition into very small chunks, then break it down into something that you can do today. Do it today and then look back every so often and realize, hey, I'm climbing the mountain and I have a new view from up here. Yeah, for sure. Well, Chris, you got a pretty cool Kickstarter project going on right now. Tell me more about that. Yes, it's called Heroic Challenges. It's a cart-based product for 
a D&D or Pathfinder or whatever fantasy role-playing game you're into. It's sort of system neutral-ish, and it's uh, a card set that comes with challenge cards and reward cards. It could be used by the players or the dungeon master, doesn't really matter. And the idea is that uh, during the, at the start of the role-playing session, for example, uh, either the group or a player individually draws a challenge card, and it could be this additional uh, challenge to achieve during that role-playing session. And if you achieve it, if you complete it, then you get to draw a reward card. And the challenges uh, could be combat-related, role-playing, exploration. There's certain like moral dilemmas, like are you going to save somebody or sacrifice somebody? So it really triggers players to think and role-play uh, outside of the box a little bit. And the rewards are very uh, fun as well. So not just here's 50 gold or XP. They're, you know, interesting rewards that enhance the story a little bit of the session. And I think it's interesting because uh, usually it's the dungeon master sitting behind his GM screen having all of the secrets. And with this card deck, um, having the challenge cards in the hands of the players, they could sort of have their own little a card-sized GM screen with a secret that the GM doesn't know. So I kind of chuckle thinking about that. And uh, yeah, we just funded. It launched two days ago. It's funded. So thanks, everyone. And we will now try to unlock one or two stretch goals. So yeah, uh, check it out. And um, if you're into role-playing, uh, there's a good chance that you will like it. Awesome. Well, Chris, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the Kickstarter campaign and everything else you got going on right now. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?